Romans, verse by verse. We're in chapter 7, and we're looking at verses 7 through 14. Sin and the law is what I've titled the message. And let's uh, pray, and then we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege of study. Pray for the Holy Spirit to have his way in our hearts as we uh, study together. Help us to grow in grace. Help me to teach accurately and clearly. Kind of a complicated text. Uh, pray that we could make the applications that you would have for us uh, today. Commit our study to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you'll note on the overhead uh, the uh, theme of Romans, the righteousness of God, uh, the gospel of God. And uh, we have worked our way down to that section on sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. Uh, the uh, themes, the major themes that have de been developed and are being developed are these. We have a universal sin problem in chapter 1 through chapter 3a. And then uh, justification by faith, and uh, that is in 3b through 4, uh, followed by solidarity with Christ in chapter 5, and sanctification, which is uh, the current text uh, we find ourselves in here. Now, the uh, believer, uh, note we have studied this, the believer is dead to sin and uh, dead to the law. But we are alive to Christ a slave of Christ, and married to Christ. Now, these are all positional realities. And the believer is now called to live according to our position. However, being dead to sin and the law does not mean we no longer have a struggle with sin. And Paul deals with this reality at great length here in Romans chapter 7. We have what I call colliding realities that we deal with. And uh, these are the colliding realities. There is the issue of God's law, uh, God's moral code. Uh, then we also still have a sin nature. Uh, call it the flesh, sin nature, whatever you want to call it. But it relates to unholy desires that we find flaring up within us. And, but then we also have a new nature, holy desires, and then there is the Holy Spirit. And we find the power is of the Holy Spirit to live for God. Well, how these realities all relate simultaneously to the believer is challenging to define exactly. Hence, so much discussion and the debate over various nuances in the text. Pastor Stephen Cole, longtime pastor, uh, says, in my judgment, one of the most difficult theological issues in the Bible is that of the believer's relationship to the law of God. Since the word law is used 19 times in Romans 7, clearly that is Paul's theme. He said, I was hoping that the Lord might come before I got to this chapter. <laughs> you will see, it is complicated. Uh, this is what Paul is grappling with, though, this collision, this combination of things in Romans chapter 7. But he does so, in my view, leaving out the Holy Spirit until he gets to Romans chapter 8. So uh, note what we're talking about here. Uh, I've already mentioned this colliding of realities, the law, the sin nature, and the new nature. But he doesn't really get to the Holy Spirit until we get to Romans chapter 8. So keep that in mind. As Christians, we are complex, conflicted, 
and often seemingly contradictory in our experience. Romans 7 reflects this. And because of this mix, commentators, that is good Bible scholars, often disagree on the specific nuances in this passage. They disagree at certain points on whether Paul is describing a believer or an unbeliever. You would think, oh, we'd all agree on that. No, we don't. Uh, whether he is describing an immature believer or a mature believer. When he says, I, the debate is whether he is speaking of his own experience or whether he is personifying that of Adam or Israel or some combination. Well, don't you see how this gets complicated in a hurry? Uh, this is definitely a place for humility as good scholars, very good Bible scholars disagree. So I'm not going to give you all the views on all the various nuances as that would just be confusing. I am going to give you my studied view of what I think Paul is saying, but, but hopefully with an air of, of humility. That's, that's the, the spirit I want to have here. Uh, the most natural way to take I in the passage is to take it as Paul's personal experience. I mean, if you say I, usually you mean I, right? Yeah, that, that, that's the normal way you would take it. Uh, Paul uses I, me, or myself 47 times in this section. So very much emphasizing I. I take it, pun intended, <laughs> that uh, we have two things in view here, really. Romans 7, 7 through 13, I think Paul is dealing with his pre-conversion, before he was saved, his pre-conversion experience. He uses the past tense of the verbs and shows the law can't save, but it does reveal sin. And then in Romans 7, 14 through 25, his post-conversion experience, present tense, all the way through, present tense. So past tense, 7 through 13, present tense, verses 14 through 25, and emphasizes there the law can't uh, sanctify, and it doesn't give power uh, over sin. Well, Paul has just stated that the law aroused the flesh to bear fruit to death. But now having died to the law, we serve in newness of spirit, as seen in Romans 7, 5, and 6. So the question arises, is the law then sinful? I mean, since it activates sin... Is it, uh, is it a culprit? Is it uh, involved here as, uh, in being sinful? Well, Paul emphatically answers, this is not the case. Let's pick it up, Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So Paul dogmatically states that the law is not sinful. The law is not the problem. Now James illustrates the law is like a mirror. Uh, the function of the mirror is to show the person that their face is dirty. The problem is not with the mirror. The problem is with the person's face. Now you can't blame the law for exposing sin any more than you can blame a mirror for revealing dirt. In fact, the law is helpful in that it helps us to see our sin. Now Paul says he would not have known sin except through the law. 
This is a key purpose for the law. It reveals sin. Now, we've covered this, but note this statement back in chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Nothing to do with justifying you, but everything to do with exposing our sin. Uh, Leon Morris says, Paul does not mean that people without the law do not know sin at all. He has said the opposite, chapter 2, chapter 5. All people have some idea of right and wrong. A moral code of some sort is almost universal. People who do not have the law may well know that they have done wrong, but people without God's law do not see wrongdoing as it really is, as sin against God. Well, Paul now, via his personal testimony, shows how the law revealed sin in him. Now, I think outwardly, Paul, as an unbeliever, was very impressive. Outwardly, it seemed like he kept the law very well. In fact, as he shares his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, he says, verse 6, concerning zeal persecuting the church, but then another uh, thought, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He goes on to say, I counted all of these things lost. They were not a profit to me. He didn't really keep the law, as he will go on to share here in Romans. But uh, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he, boy, it looked like he was pretty well blamed. Outwardly, it looked like this. Outwardly, no one could find anything on Paul. It seemed like he'd kept the law perfectly. But then that law about you shall not covet grabbed him by the throat. Outwardly, Paul did not really know sin. He was good outwardly, but inwardly he had a problem. You see, all the other commandments really have an outward emphasis. But coveting is an inward thing, a matter of the heart. And if he was honest, he had a problem in the heart with coveting. Now, covetousness is the sin of desire, the sin of desire. It means to wrongfully desire what does not belong to you and what is not rightfully yours to have. Now, there is something in the sin nature that wants to have what is not rightful for you to have. It desires what God has forbidden. And we just come with this bent. You see, outwardly, people might even be disciplined to restrain themselves to a point especially the self-righteous moralist or religionist. But at the same time, inwardly, they desire what they should not have. It is this sin of desire that got to Paul. Every illicit desire is really a form of idolatry. Uh, Paul makes this connection in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, covetousness puts your selfish desire above God and therefore is a form of idolatry. Anything you put above God is idolatry. Francis Schaeffer said, actually, we break the last commandment, not to covet, before we break any of the others. Any time that we break one of the other commandments of God, it means that we have already broken this commandment in coveting. Verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. 
For apart from the law, sin was dead. Paul here is talking about his pre-conversion days. When he really began to study the law, it was then that the sin of covetousness really began to stir within him. And then sin used the commandment to not covet as a base of operations to arouse all manner of evil desire within him. Sin here is personified as an internal enemy. Really what's in view is the sin nature called the flesh. We are born with a sin nature that when told not to do something, it then really wants to do it. Tell a little child no and their natural tendency is defiance. Uh, we have to train them to respond otherwise. Now we all come with this natural sin bent. This is what Paul is dealing with here. Bible knowledge commentary, law is not the cause of the act of sin. The principle or nature of sin within an individual is. The sin nature inside us feeds on forbidden fruit. Uh, Proverbs 9, 17, stolen water is sweet. Why? Why is stolen water sweet? Say stolen water is bitter. Yeah, it is in the end. <laughs> but it seems like it's going to be sweet. What is that? Well, it's because we have a sin nature that naturally feeds on sin. When it says in verse 8 that sin taking opportunity by the commandment, that word opportunity is really a military word. It was a word used for a military base of operations. So sin takes God's commandments and uses them to stir up sin within us. Now, how, how ironic as soon as Paul attempted to keep the law, thou shalt not covet, the very commandment he was trying to keep provoked all manner of evil desire within him. So strangely, the law not only reveals sin, but it also stirs up our sinful nature to want to do more sin. In his book, Confessions, the church father Augustine described how this dynamic worked its way out in his life. As a young man, uh, he says, this is what he says, his testimony, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better back home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Boy, that describes sin, the sin nature. You know, in American history, there was the Prohibition Act uh, in place from 1920 to 1933. Some of you will remember. No, probably not. But uh, it prohibited the manufacture, the sale, the transport, the import, or export of alcoholic beverages. Hey, let's just shut it down. Well, how did that work? You know, it didn't work. 
it didn't stop drinking. In fact, in many ways, it exacerbated the drinking problem all the more as people turned to the black market. Hey, guys, it's available. The human sin nature has an inborn desire to break the law. Paul says, apart from the law, sin was dead, meaning it kind of lied dormant until it was stirred up by the law. However, the rebellious sin nature is stimulated by the law to where it sins all the more. If you put a sign not to throw rocks through this window, prepare for broken glass. The prohibition of law is like shaking a can of Coca-Cola. Prepare for an eruption of sin. Uh, Note what I say here. The sin nature reacts to thou shalt not with I really want to. Uh, It is the forbidden fruit syndrome. Verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, Paul is speaking relatively here in terms of his experience. Evidently, he is referring to the time when he was a young person before he actually knew and understood the, the command against coveting. They say ignorance is bliss. In his ignorance, he felt free, that is, alive. But then the commandment came. And his sin nature responded to it with sinful desire. And it killed him. It killed him in the sense of showing him to be unrighteous before God. It showed him to be guilty and worthy of death. You see, lawbreakers deserve death. That's the penalty. The law condemns those who break it with death. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul called the law the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Now, some have suggested that this time of innocence in Paul's life was perhaps before his bar mitzvah at the age of 13. Uh, At a Jewish bar mitzvah, the young man is then considered to be an adult and becomes a, quote, son of the commandment, where he is now responsible to keep the law. Perhaps, perhaps uh, that is what is in view, but, but Paul really doesn't tell us that. He doesn't give us the specifics. In his ignorance, everything seemed fine. It's like the person with a filthy, dirty face who has not yet looked into the mirror. I'm fine. I'm ready to face the public. They have not yet seen their dirtiness. They think everything is fine, but it's not fine. The problem of sin is there even though they don't yet realize it. Verse 10, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The commandment was to bring life, but with one condition. You have to keep it. You have to keep it all the time in thought, word, and deed. But indeed, it did have the promise of life. Leviticus 18.5, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. But Paul found that which could theoretically bring life to actually bring death. And the reason is because he broke it. He broke the law. And right there is the problem. No one can keep the law as it is too much for sinners like us who have a sin nature like we do. Now, there were 613 laws under the Mosaic Code. It was a unit, a unit of one, 
yet it consisted of 613 laws. Now, to break even one of them was to break the whole thing. God demands total perfection, total consistency. It's like a, a windshield. You say, well, the windshield's not really broken on my side. You know, it's smashed over there. But no, the whole thing is broken. It needs to be totally replaced. Even to break one law, you've broken it. Uh, James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. It's a unit. You're either a lawbreaker or you keep the whole thing. John Gerstner uh, was a seminary professor for many years. And one day he was preaching uh, in Romans in a certain church. Now he expounded on the law and he used it to expose sin, which is a proper use of the law. Well, after the service, a woman came up to him and she held up her hand uh, with her index finger and her thumb about a half inch apart. And she said, Dr. Gerstner, you made me feel this big. And Dr. Gerstner replied, but madam, that's too big. That's much too big. Don't you know that much self-righteousness, that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? Indeed, we have no righteousness. In Galatians 3, 10, and 11, for as many as are of, the, are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law. In the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. There's another way. We, we can't keep the law. So God has made a way through faith. Galatians chapter 3, just a few verses later, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And as Paul will go on to show, the problem is not the law. The problem is us and our sinfulness. Those who have clean faces do not have to fear the mirror. But alas, we all have dirt on us. Therefore, as Paul says in Romans 3.19, all the world is shown to be guilty before God. Verse 11 the word, uh, note uh, the word occasion here, verse 11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. The word occasion here is the very same word translated opportunity in verse 8. Sin using the commandment as a base of operations deceived Paul and killed him. Now Paul initially thought that the commandments were the way to life. His sinful heart thought he could keep them. But this proved to be deceitful. Because of his sin nature, he could not do it. And the result was spiritual death. Now again, Leon Morris says, here he apparently means that sin took advantage of the fact that one does not expect God's commandment to be the occasion of death. And it is thus used that, and it thus used that commandment to bring about death. We should be clear that it was not the commandment that slew Paul. God's commandment is always directed towards life. It was sin that killed the apostle. Sin took advantage of the situation and used the commandment to bring about Paul's death. Sin is again here personified. It first deceives and then it kills by way of the commandment. 
This is the objective of sin, to kill you eternally. Sin is pictured as a very personal enemy within. Way back in Genesis 4, 7, uh, Cain is in view here, and God says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It's personified as crouching at the door, like a lion that's just ready to pounce on you. And its desire is for you to take you out, in effect, to kill you. But you should rule over it. Conclusion, verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Verse 12 answers the question raised in verse 7. Is the law sin? Most emphatically the answer is no. In fact, the law is holy, just, and good. Now sin may have used the law, but the law itself is perfectly holy. God is holy and his law is holy. Holy means set apart. God's law is the holy standard that reflects his own holiness. It reflects God's holy character. Thus, the law is a perfect reflection of the holy God who gave it. In effect, it's a perfect mirror, a mirror of holiness. It is perfectly able to show us the dirt on us, but it can't make us clean. It is also just, meaning righteous, it is right in all that it declares. It's never unjust or unfair. It is perfectly equitable in every way. If you want perfect justice, you will find it under the law. But alas, we need grace. And the law is good in that it aims at life. It has the beneficent good of mankind in view. It helps us to see our need of a Savior. As Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Thus, it ultimately helps us on to God by showing us our need of a Savior. Verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might, might become exceedingly sinful. Three times, he says, the culprit is really sin. The problem has never been the law, per se. It's perfectly good. It's not responsible for our death. The law is not the culprit for our death doom. You know, the criminal who is caught red-handed for breaking the law and is then sentenced to prison cannot blame the law for the consequences. He has no one to blame but sinful self. And so it is with us. Our real problem is not the law, but sin. The culprit is sin, and the function of the law is simply to expose it for what it is. The culprit we need uh, to look no further to is that of indwelling sin. Our own sin nature is to blame, not the law. Sin by way of the commandment is shown to be exceedingly sinful. The law exposes sin for just how sinful it is. The law exposes sinful depravity for the monster that it truly is, and it is shockingly horrible. It shows the true colors of sin. Sin, that which is really the sin nature, is exceedingly sinful. 
Now, unsaved people may realize there is such a thing as sin, but apart from the law, they have no idea how horrifically sinful sin really is. You know, people think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm not such a bad sinner, I'm going to hell. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but it won't keep me, you know, from being with God. They have no idea how horrible their sin is. The terribleness of sin is seen that it takes something as perfectly holy, righteous, and good as the law and uses it to kill us. Sin turns God's blessing, the law, into a curse. Sin made use of what is good to bring about evil. Sin is indeed exceedingly sinful. This story comes from John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. It has a scene in which Christian is taken into a room by interpreter. It's a large room, and it is thick with dust. And the dust is lying settled. Then a man walks in with a broom and starts sweeping the dust. And so much dust arises that Christian almost is suffocated to death by the dust. The imagery pictures the large room as the heart. The dust is sin. It lies settled until interpreter takes Christian in. The man who comes in with the broom is the law. And what the law does is just raise dust everywhere, almost to the place of suffocation. And the more the law sweeps, the more suffocating the experience becomes. Just as a broom by itself cannot clean a room filled with dust, but rather only stirs it up and makes things worse, so also the law cannot cleanse the heart of sin. But it does do a great job of stirring things up and exposing the sinfulness of sin. Well, as seen in our text, the law really does three things, as emphasized here. The law reveals sin, it arouses sin, and it magnifies sin. Well, we now come to verse 14. And here we have a shift. From verse 7 through 13, he has been talking about past tense. I take it this section essentially refers to Paul's experience with sin and the law prior to his conversion. But now in verses 14 through 25, we see him speaking in the present tense, related to his present tense struggle with sin after becoming a Christian. I take it that this is representative of the present tense struggle that Christians have with sin. This battle with sin never goes away until we get home to glory. It's a battle every day. It's a battle to the pearly gates. However, there has been no end of discussion about verses 14 through 25 and whether they are descriptive of Paul as a mature Christian, an immature Christian, a carnal believer, or an unbeliever. Lots of ink is spilled over this discussion. Well, since Paul in chapter 6 has so strongly stated that the believer has been freed from the slavery of sin, 618, some therefore believe that Paul cannot be describing a true believer here in Romans 7.14. Notice what he says. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That doesn't seem to jive with what he said in chapter 6. And so some say he cannot therefore be describing a believer as seen here in Romans 7.14 and on. Others emphasize that Paul, at this point, says he delights in the law. He delights in the law of God, as seen in 722, 
which is indicative of only a true believer. And round and round it goes with many points and counterpoints, which I told you I would not take you through. And I won't. However, my view is that the transition from past tense in verses 7 through 13 to present tense in verses 14 through 25 is indicative of conversion. In this transition, Paul moves from being under the condemnation of sin to now delighting in God's truth, and yet at the same time struggling with indwelling sin. That's the position of a believer. The transition point of conversion is saving faith. We saw this in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the receiving of grace and of the gift of righteousness, as seen in Romans 5.17. This is the obedience of faith, as seen in Romans 6.17. Well, Paul, having made a transition from his past relationship with sin and the law, now has a present struggle with sin, as noted in verses 14 through 25. Our relationship with sin and the law is now different as believers, but our battle with sin continues. And that is what Paul now deals with in the remainder of the chapter. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Verse 14 begins with Paul saying, we know that the law is spiritual. Uh, we know as an appeal to shared knowledge. There's not really argument here. The law is holy. It's spiritual. The law aligns with what is spiritual as emphasized in verse 12. It's holy, just, and good. However, Paul says, in contrast, I'm not really measuring up to what is holy, just, and good. Not in, not in my practice. Paul says, I'm carnal. Sold under sin. The imagery here is that of the slave market, where slaves were bought and sold. Sold under sin means that sin is now commanding the person like it owns them. Now, I do not think that Paul is speaking categorically. Paul here is not addressing his position in Christ, as seen in chapter 6, but speaking, speaking functionally. In Romans 6, Paul is very clear and emphatic that positionally we are dead to sin. And yet at the same time in chapter 6, he also says this. 6.12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. The point is that the believer is not to let sin reign, but if we allow it to do so, it can. It can reign. At the moment sin has its way in a believer, at that moment, sin is reigning. At that moment, the believer has given the reign over to sin. Functionally, the believer in that moment is not being spiritual, but rather carnal, acting as if sin is the master. Now, it's contrary to positional truth, but functionally, it depicts the believer's experience in the moment. Paul addressed the saints at Corinth, uh, and he addressed them as saints. But he also addressed them as carnal, carnal saints. How can that be? Uh, yes, he addressed the saints at Corinth as carnal because of how they were living. They were spiritual in their position as sanctified saints, as seen in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. 
But in practice, they were functionally carnal, as seen in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. My point is that functionally, it is possible for a believer to be carnal, where sin is having its way, as described here in Romans 7, 14. Realize that Paul describes the believer as a person with two natures. In him, he has the flesh, what I call the old sin nature, in which nothing good dwells. There's nothing good about it. But at the same time, his true identification, his new nature, delights in what is holy. And both of these realities are true within the life of every believer. Notice, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me, in me, this is my experience, my reality, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. But then he says in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now, nowhere do we find the unbeliever in a struggle like this. Rather, they're in bondage to sin. They don't even desire the things of God. Rather, they're hostile to God, as seen in Romans 8, 7. As Paul shows in Romans 1, 32, they approve of their own sin and also that of others. They don't hate it. I think the struggle with sin is itself evidence of true salvation. Only the believer has the conflict of two natures operative within him. Namely, the flesh, the sinful nature, and the new nature. In Romans 8, Paul describes this struggle in terms of groaning, groaning. He's not just talking a physical groaning. He's talking a spiritual reality. We are groaning, awaiting the day of redemption when we will be delivered from these bodies of flesh. Paul here is bearing his heart as he shares his personal struggle with sin related to the flesh and the new nature which he describes, the new nature, as the newness of spirit in Romans 7, 6. Now keep in mind that Paul is not in the flesh, which is descriptive of the unbeliever as seen in Romans 7, 5. However, the flesh is still in him, as seen in Romans 7, 18. The reality of indwelling sin is still a reality as seen in Romans 7, 17. Paul does not have the carnal mind of enmity against God that defines the unbeliever, as seen in Romans 8, 7, but rather a mind that serves the law of God as seen in Romans 7, 25. And so, as I say, he was conflicted, and we are conflicted. The believer has been freed from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, but not yet, not yet from the presence of indwelling sin. It's right there all the time, isn't it? it is, crying out for attention, promising us a little bit of satisfaction. The sin nature is represented in the believer. Indwelling sin is ever present. We wrestle with sinful inclinations. We still have the flesh, and the battle is real. We are always just one step away from falling, by the way. You're not safe till you're home in terms of falling. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Watch out! 
You can fall. You say, well, I'm beyond that. I'm dead to sin. I, no problem. Hmm. Be careful. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, spiritual, in step with the Spirit, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Watch out. Even if you're spiritual, you're in danger too. The spiritual are those who are walking in the Spirit. The one who needs to be restored is functionally being carnal and in need of restoration. Here is Paul's point up to this point. Paul has emphasized our position as being dead to sin and dead to the law. And he has emphasized our position of being in the realm of newness of spirit, reflecting the reality of a new nature. However, he has not yet gotten to the power source, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, he will get there in chapter 8 which is the most dominant chapter in the whole Bible on the Spirit. Mentioned more in chapter 8 than any other chapter in the Bible. So he will get to it in chapter 8. But for now, he is dealing with the struggle with sin that is common to all believers. And this conflicted state we are in, having the flesh and having a new nature. We have the flesh. We feel the strong pull of sin. At the same time, we have a new nature that has holy desires and wants to do what is right. We as believers all have this struggle because we still have the flesh and we also now have a new nature in which we are partakers of the divine nature. This makes for a conflicted experience in which we groan awaiting final redemption and deliverance from the very presence of sin. So, how is it possible for a Christian to be carnal, fleshy, a slave of sin? Well, well, functionally, if we don't walk in the Spirit, we yield to sin. And it is more than ready to take the rein if we let it. They say nature abhors a vacuum. If we're not walking in the Spirit, sin will aggressively move into that space and reign in our mortal body. Paul simply says this in Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if we don't walk in the Spirit, the lust of the flesh is bound to have its way with us. We have to be proactive here. We choose whether we will obey the Spirit or obey the lusts, the lustful desires of sin. But here is the point. We are dead to sin and to the law. So we don't have to obey sin. It's no longer our master. However, we do need to realize we can't do this on our own. We need God's help. We're very needy. We need the power of the Spirit to overcome sin in our walk. Even though we now have a new nature, the power is of the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. That's always key to victory. As we grow in grace, the closer we get to God, the more we see our own sinfulness. You know, when Isaiah, you know, you know the holy prophet Isaiah, when he saw a vision of God and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, what was his response? Thankfully, I'm a holy prophet. No, this is what he said. So he said, woe is me. 
I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. There's been some things coming out of my mouth that weren't holy. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Peter was a fisherman. We call him the big fisherman. He knew all about fishing. I mean, if there's one thing Peter knew about is fishing. And having fished all night one time, he caught nothing. Well, Peter knew full well that if he hadn't caught anything all night, you could be sure you're not going to catch anything in the day because the fish go deeper during the day. Yet at Jesus' command, which he must have spoke with some authority, uh, throw out your nets again. What do you mean? We're just, we're, just, we're just finished. So they threw out their nets at his command, and they caught so many fish that the net was breaking. Well, Peter, realizing the greatness of this miracle and how this reflected on who Jesus was as Lord, said this. Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we realize our own sinfulness. I think when Paul would mess up, he was keenly aware of his sinfulness, and he expressed it in these graphic terms, I am carnal, sold under sin. In the moment of sin, that was his felt experience. But praise God, we don't have to live there, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Wow, how can you really line up with the, the holy requirements of the law? I thought that wasn't possible. Well, within yourself, it's not. But he says might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, you are lining up with God's holiness. When we walk in the Spirit, we are not functionally carnal, but rather fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So the Spirit is the empowering key, as we will see. However, the struggle is real, and that is what Paul deals with throughout the remainder of chapter 7. Paul is showing that while the law is valuable, and it is. In showing us the reality of our sin, it is useless in empowering us to have victory over it. Warren Wiersbe, good quote. Wiersbe's always good for quotes. Uh, it has been said, the old nature knows no law, the new nature needs no law. The law cannot transform the old nature. It can only reveal how sinful that old nature is. The believer who tries to live under the law will only activate the old nature. He will not eradicate it. Those that place themselves under the law are only going to exacerbate the sin nature that is still within them. That's not the key to victory. And, you know, people tend to just kind of start out a little legalistic. I know I did in my Christian walk. Boy, I was very sincere about the Lord. But, boy, everything was black and white. I mean, and if you dared to cross the line, I had a judgmental thought about you for sure. You know, it's interesting. If you study church history, as I do to some extent, uh, you will find that some of the most legalistic of professing Christians were often found to be the greatest of hypocrites in the end. Sin secretly had its sway with them. Living under a legalistic code only stirs up sin all the more. Legalism does not set us free. Rather, it stirs up sin within and brings us functionally into bondage. 
No wonder Paul so adamantly said this in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, in the freedom by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. One of the hardest things to get through to Christians is the reality of our freedom in Christ in terms of our practice. Part of the struggle with the influence of indwelling sin is that we feel the pull to again put it under some form of legalism as the solution. But in truth, that's a killer. We constantly need to come back to the truth of Jesus. Where is our freedom found? Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you should be free indeed. Well, before launching into this turbulent section on sanctification, Paul emphasized justification by faith alone. And the security of eternal life that is found through Jesus Christ our Lord. He ended chapter 5 by saying that the, uh, for the believer, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns, not sin, not the law. Now, I'm so glad that Paul laid down the security of eternal life on the basis of grace through faith before dealing with the conflicted turbulence of our ongoing struggle with sin in chapter 6 and 7. You probably know this, but uh, Footprints in the Sand was a poem written by Mary Stevenson in 1939. It goes like this. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would always be with me. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why? When I needed you the most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, The times when you have seen only one set of footprints is when I carried you. No matter what we as believers go through in our struggles with sin, the Lord has promised he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. No matter how conflicted, complicated, or contradictory our walk at times may seem to be, we can say with Paul, who at the end of this long section on sanctification said, absolutely nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In your darkest hour as a believer, never forget, is the Lord who carries you. And it is he who will carry you through to the end. Grace reigns. Not sin, not the law. And if you do not know Christ, come to him. Freedom is found in him. He invites you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's all about Jesus. He's our deliverer. He's the Savior. He's our Lord. He sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us to live for him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.